I know that we've read Revelation 5 earlier in the service, but I would encourage you to have your copy of the Scriptures open. We're going to walk through this passage and talk about the various pieces of this passage. Uh, We've officially made it to the home stretch. December is the last month of the year, and Revelation is the last book of the Bible. We've spent this year moving through the New Testament, from Matthew now to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we've come come to something that really is unique in all of the Scriptures. And right now, you have a unique opportunity as a part of this church to study the book of Revelation. Our women are in the middle of a study through the book of Revelation. They're using a book titled Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. Uh, They've paused for the holidays, and they'll pick that back up uh, on the other side of Christmas. So ladies, if you're interested in being involved in that study, that will be back before you know it. Men, we're also studying the book of Revelation. Uh, We're studying it on Tuesday nights, one Tuesday night a month. At the Emmanuel Institute, we have one more class this month in December, and then we'll take a break after Christmas and be back, I believe, in February. So two opportunities for men, and one one for men, one for ladies, if you'd like to study uh, Revelation in more detail with us. Our passage this morning is Revelation 5. Let me just start with a few comments about the book itself. The book of Revelation is not like anything else in the Bible when you take it in its totality. It is apocalyptic writing. It is prophetic writing. It's prophecy. And it is a letter. It's an epistle. And it's all three of those things rolled into one. The very first word in Greek in this book is the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally means revealing or unveiling. It's why we call this book Revelation. When you think about the word apocalypse, I imagine that you, being conditioned by Hollywood and Netflix and Amazon and whatever you stream, you think end of the world. That's what an apocalyptic movie is. If you search online, I want to watch an apocalyptic movie. The earth's about to be blown up by nuclear war or by an asteroid or by global warming or who knows what. But the earth's about to come to some sort of terrible end. We think apocalypse in terms of end of the world. But in the Bible, an apocalypse is a revealing. And it has more to do with showing you what is real than showing you what is to come. Now, the book of Revelation does talk about things that are to come. It does talk about the future. It has prophecy in it, and it is a letter written to actual churches. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But most basically, it is an apocalyptic piece of writing meant to pull back the curtain so that you can see clearly through a window to what is real, what is real right now, today. Yes, there's a future aspect to the book, but most basically, Revelation is showing us what is real. There's all sorts of imagery in apocalyptic writing. That imagery is never meant to be taken literally. It is always meant to be taken seriously, and we're going to aim to do that this morning. Now, let's just think about the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 is a vision. And it's a vision in which John, 
who is exiled to the island of Patmos, a prison colony, likely producing, mining, digging out uh, rock from the ground, granite. John has a vision of Jesus. It's absolutely glorious. It is equal parts terrifying and comforting. It's terrifying because when John sees Jesus, he falls down like a dead man, thinking that his end has come. It's comforting in the fact that the Lord Jesus reaches down, touches John, and says, don't be afraid. It's a beautiful vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you come to Revelation 2 and 3, and you find seven letters to seven churches. And you can see the letters, and you can see the churches right here in Revelation 2. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven real churches. They're as real as the church that you're gathered with together this morning in their day. Real churches. Now, granted, they maybe didn't have a a piano up on the stage, and they maybe didn't have a a tall, bald-headed preacher up on the platform, and maybe they didn't have a heater or an air conditioner to make sure that this room is just a little bit chillier than you would prefer it to be on a Sunday morning. But it was a church. It's a real life people, a real life group of folks that had come together and congregated together and assembled together to make up a local church. It's literally seven churches on the mail route. If you left Patmos and you were walking down the road in this province of Asia, you would hit these churches in order. You would go to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Right there in a row. Real churches facing real problems. They weren't the only seven churches on the mail route. They weren't the only seven churches in the province of Asia. So you understand and I understand that while he's writing to real churches in a real historical setting, the fact that he writes to seven of them is important. And it tells us, because the number of seven is important in the book of Revelation, it tells us that he's writing to every church, to the fullness of the church, to all of God's people through all time. He's writing to us even today here at Emmanuel. Who's doing the writing? Well, John is doing the scribal work. The letters come from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit. Jesus begins each letter speaking, and he identifies himself based on part of the vision that you saw in chapter 1. And then at the end of each each letter, we read, let the people hear, let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. Listen to Jesus, listen to His Spirit. They are speaking the same message to the church. So that's Revelation 1 and 2 and 3. That brings us to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is another vision. In this vision, John is taken to the throne room of the universe. It's the very presence of God. The throne in heaven, and there is one seated on the throne... And the angelic host are gathered around that throne and they are singing out night and day, never ceasing to acknowledge that Almighty God on the throne is holy, holy, holy. He is Almighty. He is the Sovereign One. And the most important thing that they sing about Him on repeat is that He is holy, 
holy, holy. Chapter 4 is what we would call a theophany. It's a visible manifestation, a visible appearance of the invisible God for John's benefit. And the emphasis in chapter 4 is the holiness of God. Our chapter is chapter 5. If chapter 4 is a theophany, chapter 5 is a Christophany. It's an appearance, a physical, visible manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the emphasis in chapter 4 is on the holiness of God, the emphasis in chapter 5 is the worthiness of Jesus. And that's the big idea of our passage this morning. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. What is he worthy? Well, he's worthy of all power, all wealth, all wisdom, all might, all honor, all glory, and all blessing. Straight out of Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. Jesus is worthy. Now, we have a lot to talk about in this chapter. And rather than jump in with some sort of story or illustration, I think we'll just jump right into the text. And my intention this morning is to walk through Revelation chapter 5 and to make 11 pit stops along the way. We could make more. We'll just make 11 stops talking about some of the key words in this chapter. And as we go, continually tying Revelation back to the Old Testament. Let me just make this point simply. You would never expect to pick up a novel to read only the last chapter and to think that you understood the book. This is the last chapter in a story. There are 65 previous books that make up this one story. And if you've not read and understood the big contours of the previous 65 books, you are in no way, shape, or form ready for the last chapter. A lot of people like to study the book of Revelation. Not many people like to study Genesis, Leviticus, Isaiah, the Old Testament books. But if you've not studied those books, much of, uh, of what you read in Revelation remains a mystery to you as the reader. So let's talk about some of the key words in Revelation chapter 5. We'll start with this word scroll. And John tells us about this scroll and he says there are seven seals on this scroll keeping it closed. The literal word in the Greek is biblion. It's obviously where we get the English word Bible. But the idea is not that it was a bound book, but that it's a scroll rolled up, sealed so that it cannot be opened. As you keep reading in the book of Revelation, you'll come shortly to chapter 6. And when you read Revelation chapter 6, it's fairly obvious that the contents of this scroll that is opened in chapter 6, the contents of the scroll is all of the plans and purposes of God, beginning with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, all the way to His second coming. It's the entirety of what we would call church history. And those plans, all of God's purposes, everything that's written on this scroll on the front and the back and sealed, all of God's plans and purposes involve salvation for His people and judgment for His enemies. Salvation and judgment. 
two major themes as you work your way through the book of Revelation. I told you our ladies are using a book by Nancy Guthrie. Nancy Guthrie is helpful here. She's talking about the scroll. She says the scroll represents the decrees of God concerning the unfolding of God's plans for salvation and for judgment, both. They were established before the foundations of the world. In other words, God's not winging it. He's not making it up as He goes along. He's not reacting to things that we do that have caught Him off guard in any way, shape, or form. From the foundation of the world, He had a plan. And this scroll contains His plans and His purposes, His decrees for judgment for His enemies, salvation for His people. They're set in motion by Christ's death and His resurrection. And the question in chapter 5 as we jump in is, who can open the scroll? It's sealed with seven seals. Who can open this scroll? Who can unfold the story of history as God has determined it? The first candidate that we meet is described as a mighty angel. Christians in the United States are fascinated with angels. We make up all sorts of things about angels that aren't in the Bible. Maybe a mighty angel could open the scroll, but you learn in short form that this mighty angel cannot open the scroll. In fact, this mighty angel shows up simply to ask a question, who can open it? Who can open this scroll? Now, I want to just pause right there, and I want you to think with me. The scroll is in the hand of one seated on the throne. We met him in chapter 4. Chapter 4 says that he's the Almighty. Chapter 4 says the one seated on the throne is worthy of glory, honor, power. Uh, Chapter 4 says that the one seated on the throne created all things. And chapter 4 says that by the will of the one who is seated on the throne, all things existed and were created and exist in the present. He sustains it all. Surely he's worthy to open it. It's his scroll. He's on the throne, and he's got the scroll in his hand. Why doesn't he just open it? And the answer is what I told you was the emphasis in chapter 4. It's because he is holy, 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 and you and I and everyone else who lives on this earth is not. And if the Holy One, the Almighty One, were to simply rip this scroll open and begin to unfold the story of human history, you and I are dead. It's over. The evil in this world runs through our hearts. And if the Holy One is going to rip the scroll open and begin to unfold the story of history, we're all going down. He's holy, 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 and we're not. So what we need is someone who could open this scroll, usher in judgment for God's enemies to uphold His holiness, and bring salvation for His people so that we're not destroyed in the wake of His wrath. Now, You're going to find out as you read shortly that it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who can open the scroll. But I I still want you to think. Why ask the question and have the awkward silence 
if the answer is Jesus, and we could, as Americans like to do, just cut to the chase and say, hey, there's a scroll here. Jesus is worthy to open it. Why doesn't John just tell us that? Why didn't the vision go like that? There's a scroll. It's a story of history, salvation and judgment. Jesus is going to open the scroll. Instead, this angel shows up and says, who's worthy? And no one says anything. And John begins to weep. It's because sometimes silence can say quite a bit. How many of you have ever been in a wedding or at a wedding where the officiant said something like this? Should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Have you been in a wedding where somebody said that before? There was no one in the first service. Has anyone been in a wedding where somebody said something? Okay, we got a few in this service. It always happens on TV, right? You get to this point in Hallmark movie, here comes Bob, and Bob says, no, don't marry the rich guy from the city, marry me, and they break it off, and she ends up with Bob, and everyone lives happily ever after. I'll confess to you, I've done a decent number of weddings. I've never used that phrase because I'm afraid that somebody will say something and then I'll have to deal with it. And so I think it's much cleaner to just say, nope, the time has passed. You do not get to object. I pronounce you husband and wife. Say it as fast as you can and get done with the whole thing. But you understand that silence in that moment says something. Silence can speak in a powerful way. You see it in a wedding. You can also see it in music. I'm not a, a great musician. I've never learned how to read music, but there's notes in music, and they show up, and they have different shapes and circles and filled in or not filled in, and they show up on different lines or spaces in between and all the acronyms to remember the notes. I don't know all that stuff. But you look at the notes, and you say, I play this one, I play this one, I play it for this long, I stop here. And one of the important things you learn when you learn to play music or sing is that there are rest notes, times where you don't sing. You don't play. If you've ever been to a middle school band concert, they haven't mastered the rest notes yet. It's just one sort of constant hum all the way through. If you've ever been that person in church who thought that Jake was going to come in with the chorus really big, and you jump out there and you realize, he's not jumping out there with me. You know that silence matters. Making the note correctly matters with your voice or with the instrument, but silence matters in music, and silence matters in Revelation 5. Who can open the scroll and break the seals? The answer is Jesus, but first we need to learn that there is no one but Jesus who can do it. He is the only one worthy to open the scroll and break the seals in a way that judgment will be meted out on God's enemies and salvation will be secured for God's people. Only Jesus is worthy. So as this question is ringing out, John begins to weep, verse 4. Verse 5, one of the elders around the throne says, Stop weeping. Weep no more. And he tells John, listen, he tells John that there is one worthy. 
And this one from around the throne says to John, the one who is worthy is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. You go back in your Old Testament and you read a chapter like Genesis 49, you will learn that this Lion of Judah is a very ancient, very old promise. It's a prophecy about a king to come. You go all the way back to Genesis 49 and you say they're talking about a lion from Judah with a scepter who will rule and reign. They're talking about a king. This elder is saying to John, that king is the one who's worthy. He's also the root of David. You can go back and you can look at 2 Samuel 7. You can look at Isaiah 11, multiple places really in the Old Testament that talks about this root of David. All of them are promises about a king, a king. If you don't know what those titles mean, you don't understand what the the elder is saying to John. The elder is saying to John, there is a king who can open the scroll and break the seals. Now, I want you to try to take yourself back in time with John on the island of Patmos. Let's say it's around 90 A.D. And somebody says to you, there is a king who can do what no one else can do. And notice what else the elder says. He says that this king, the lion, the root, verse 5, has conquered. He's conquered. That's a strong Greek word. It's the word nikao. The victor. The conqueror. He's come, and he can open it. It's very exciting if you're John. You've been crying because no one was found worthy, but now this elder says to you, there is one worthy, and he's a king. And he's not just a king, but he is a conquering king. Who would John have in mind? Remember, he hasn't seen anything yet. He's only heard. Who would, who would come to mind for John? Maybe one of the Caesars? had conquered and established the Roman Empire? Maybe Alexander the Great, who came before Rome and conquered the known world in record time? Maybe Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was the one who put his boot in Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Or maybe he would even think about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We know that John had read the book of Daniel, so maybe he would think of Nebuchadnezzar. All of these kings, conquering kings. Look what we read in verse 6. John says, I saw a lamb. Not Nebuchadnezzar. Not Cyrus. Not Alexander. Not Julius. Not Augustus. Not Nero. I saw a lamb. This lamb was standing as if it had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven spirits, seven eyes is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So we've moved from kingly images to sacrificial images. We're reading about a lamb who was slain. If you've read the Old Testament, your mind might go to Exodus 12, maybe. The lambs that were slain and the blood was smeared on the door so that death would pass over God's people. Maybe your mind would go to the greatest of all messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53, that says the suffering servant would be crushed for our iniquities, 
It would be the will of the Lord to put him to grief. And he would be led like a lamb to slaughter. You're expecting a king, a lion from Judah, a root from David, a king who has conquered. And instead what you get is a lamb who was slain. I hope you appreciate the tension for John. You've heard about a conquering king, and what you see is a lamb who was slain. But the fact that he's slain is not the only thing John tells us about him. He also tells him that he has seven horns. A horn is a symbol of power in the book of Revelation and apocalyptic writing. So John is saying to you, this is a powerful, powerful lamb. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Seven horns. He also has seven eyes. And again, we don't take this literally, but we take it seriously. And we understand that in apocalyptic writing, the eye is involved with seeing and knowing. And John is saying to us, this lamb sees. He knows everything. These eyes are his spirit sent out into all the earth. Nothing escapes his his eye, nothing escapes his knowledge. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. He is all-knowing, omniscient. And he does something that no one in all of the cosmos has dared to do. He marches right up to the throne and he takes the scroll. If you've read the book of Genesis chapter 3, you've read about a woman who was placed in a garden with her husband, and they were given one tree that was off limits to them and told not to eat of it. And if you go back and you read in Genesis chapter 3, you will read that this woman walked up to that tree, and the verb is she took something that was not hers to take. You read the same word in the story of the conquest of the battle of Jericho where God said destroy everything and a man named Achan saw some things that he wanted and he took them. Took them. Here you see a lamb, a powerful lamb, an all-knowing, all-seeing lamb, a lamb who has been slain, march up to the throne of the universe, and he takes something that no one else was worthy to take. But he's worthy to take it. And he takes this scroll, being all-powerful, being all-knowing, and as he takes the scroll, verse 8 and 9 says, worship erupts. There are prayers from the saints, the bowls and the incense. There is a new song that is sung as he takes the scroll. And look what they say. Look what they sing in verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Is he worthy because he's all-powerful? He is all-powerful, but that's not what they're singing about. Is he worthy because he's all-knowing? He is all-knowing, but it's not what they sing about. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for, here's the reason, because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. You understand, this is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together.
we gather together and we take bread and we drink from the cup. And what we are saying is, God, I am not worthy to approach your presence or your throne. If your idea of the Lord's Supper has anything to do with how worthy you are or aren't, you've missed it. You're not worthy. You and I belong in the silence of Revelation 5. Who is worthy? No one is worthy. But the Lamb is worthy. And He's worthy to take this scroll because He was slain and with His blood He ransomed people for God. This morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have put your faith in who Jesus is and what He's accomplished for you on the cross. You've acknowledged before holy God that you are unworthy and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you have never done that, you've never acknowledged your unworthiness before God and put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you've never been obedient to His command to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then we ask that you not participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. And we ask that you visit with me or one of our pastors about what it means to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was slain to ransom people for God. So if you have the elements, I'm going to ask that you take them. You can open the side of the cup that has the bread. And I'm going to read two verses, both from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You can open the cup. Again, I'm going to read from 1 Peter, this time chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A few more thoughts from Revelation 5. If you look at verse 9, you'll notice that these people, those ransomed, were ransomed with blood. They were ransomed for God, and they were ransomed from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. Again, if you've read the Old Testament, you understand this is a direct, ultimate fulfillment of what God promised to Abram who then became Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your family large. I'm going to give you offspring. You will be a blessing to the entire world. And Abraham, your offspring will be more 
They will be more than the dust of the earth. And they will be more than the stars in the sky. And when you read about this ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and you flip forward to Revelation 7, you find a great multitude that no one could number. More than the dust of the earth. More than the stars in the heavens. Where do they come from? All tribes, all peoples, all languages from every nation. They're all there. God kept His promise to Abraham, and He gave him these children, these offspring. And the most amazing thing maybe is in verse 10, where it says that you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. If you can, just take this in. There is a God in heaven, and He is holy, holy, holy. You aren't. You're a sinner. And you deserve this scroll to be opened and the judgment of God to be poured out in your life. And yet in His mercy, before the foundation of the world, the Father loved you. And in the fullness of time, He sent His Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem or to ransom those who were lost under the law. That you might be adopted into His family. And made into a kingdom. A kingdom that will reign on the earth with the king. That's an amazing gospel truth. What God has done for his enemies. To adopt them into his family and to give them the hope of a kingdom. Verse 11. Myriads and myriads. Thousands and thousands are singing. Verse 12. They're still singing. Worthy is the lamb. Remember, chapter 4, the emphasis is holiness. Chapter 5, the emphasis is worthiness. The Lamb is worthy. Verse 13, it's every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea. That's just about all of them, right? Heaven, earth, ocean, all of it. They're all crying out. They're all singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. The four living creatures say amen, and the elders fall down and they worship. That's verse 14. What do we do with this? It's a beautiful vision. How do we respond as the people of God? Let me give you three suggestions. The first is this. We should be people who worship. We should be people who worship. I want to submit to you that as a human being, as a creature, you are hardwired to desire to see or experience awesome things. It's built into who you are to experience awe in what you see and what you experience and what you take in. It's why human beings pay ridiculous amounts of money to go to sporting events. And to watch people do things that we can't do. We're awed by it. It's why we go to art museums or concerts and we watch musicians or we listen to musicians. We look at paintings and we say, these are amazing artistic things. I can't do them. I'm awed by them. It's why we go to places like the Grand Canyon or the ocean or the mountains. And we stand at these places and we say, this is amazing. We go to famous monuments, buildings, 
and we're awed by what we see. I would submit to you that this is built into you as a creature, as a human being, and I would also submit to you that when you experience awe, you as a creature have an instinctive, unforced, unprovoked response to say something about what you've seen or experienced. It's why when you go to the the basketball game and the, your team hits the last second shot, you slap hands with your buddy and you jump up and down and you scream. It just overflows out of you. It's why when you go to the Grand Canyon, you say, wow, it's big. Well, we knew it was big before you said that. But you see it and you have to say it. It's like the folks from our church who are traveling this week. They've gone and they visited the Billy Graham Center and North Carolina, they visited the Biltmore, a beautiful castle and estate in North Carolina, and it wasn't enough for them to do it together and enjoy it. They had to get on social media and rub it in our faces that we weren't there with them, and to say, oh, you should be here, if only you could see it. No one twisted their arm to post those pictures, that's just what we do as human beings. We experience something awesome, and we just instinctively want to say something about it. You know those people aren't trying to rub anything in your face. They're simply saying, this is amazing. This is amazing. Nobody's being forced to say anything in Revelation 5. They simply catch a glimpse of Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, and they have to talk about it. They have to sing about it. They have to shout about it. That's what worship is. I'm not telling you that every time you enjoy a basketball game or go to a national park that you're worshiping those people or that thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's hardwired into you to want to experience something awesome and then to say something about it. And that's the heart of Christian worship. It's to know who you are as a sinful creature, to see who God is in His holiness, to understand what God has done for you in sending His Son, to ransom you with His blood, and then to say, God, that's amazing. That's amazing. Number two, we should be Trinitarian in our worship. Our elders and staff are about to read a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. You understand that being a Christian is far more than believing in God. Lots of people believe in God. Being a Christian is far more than simply believing in Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus. Christianity is inherently a Trinitarian faith. We believe that there is only one God. He is one in essence, and yet He is three in person. And we believe this because we see it throughout the Scriptures. There is only one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Does that mean there's three gods? No, there's only one God. If you can't wrap your mind around it, that's okay. You're not God. We believe what the Bible says because we find it from beginning to end. Revelation is certainly a Trinitarian book. There's Trinitarian themes from the beginning of this book to the end. Chapter 1. You read about Almighty God, the one who sits on the throne, the one who was and is and is to come, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And then if you keep reading in chapter 1, you read that the one who is the beginning and the end died and came to life. And you say to yourself, when did God the Father die and come to life? Well, God the Father didn't do that. God the Son did. 
they shared the title. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who's the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 2 and 3. The letters to the churches. Who are the letters from? Well, they're from Jesus. And they're from the Spirit. Both. Working together. Trinity always works together in matters of salvation and revelation. You get to chapter 4 and we read that there is one seated on the throne. That's God the Father and He is worthy. And then you turn the page to chapter 5 and you meet the Lamb, the Lion, the Root, who is also worthy and receives worship. Just like the one seated on the throne receives worship in chapter 4. You read about these seven spirits of God sent out into all the, all the earth throughout the book of Revelation. Never the direct object of worship, never the focus of worship, but always pointing God's people to the truth about the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain to ransom people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. Listen, as a church, we try to be very intentional when it comes to picking songs that we sing in this room. I understand that you listen to Christian radio, streaming service, you have your favorite artists. And I understand that there's a lot of songs out there that are good songs, biblical songs, true songs, accurate songs. They're fine songs. But many of them, if you listen carefully, are about us. And it's okay to write a song about us. You can write a song about yourself. You can write a song about your experience, who you are, what you've struggled with, how you're growing. It's a perfectly acceptable thing for a Christian to write a song about. Do you understand? When you get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven and you listen to what they're singing about, they're not singing about themselves. They're singing about the triune God. They're singing about who God is and what he's done to save sinners. There's a million fine songs that are fine for you to listen to. They can edify you and strengthen you. But as the people of God, when we gather together, our focus is not us. Our focus is him. Who is God and what has he done to save us? One last truth, thought of application. We should take the gospel to those who don't worship. We're talking about missions here, evangelism, whether it's across the street or around the world. It's why we send teams to Kenya. It's why our church helps to support local ministries here in Odessa. It's why we collect a world missions offering and send all of that money to send missionaries around the world. Because here's the reality. When you look at the tribes, the peoples, the languages, and the nations of the world today, there are billions of people, with a B, billions of people, who do not worship Jesus. Many of them, hundreds upon hundreds of millions of them, have never heard the name Jesus in a gospel context. They have never heard the good news about what God has done in sending His Son to ransom people with his blood. They have never heard. They are not worshiping. And if you look at a passage like Romans chapter 10, you understand and I understand that unless someone is sent and unless they preach and unless they hear and unless they believe 
And unless they call on the name of Jesus for salvation, they will not be saved. Full stop, period, end. They will not be saved. But you have read Revelation 5. Revelation 5 says that Jesus has ransomed people with his blood from every nation, every people, every tribe, every language. And you've read Revelation 7, which says that in the end there will be this great multitude gathered around the throne from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They will be there. And you put your thinking cap on and you put two and two together as a Christian and you say, look, Romans 10 is true. They will not believe and be saved unless someone is sent to preach and they hear. That will not happen. But they don't know right now. So we've got to send somebody right now. Maybe across the street, maybe around the world. Maybe you going yourself. Maybe you sending someone through a a gift to a world missions offering. But we give and we go because we look around the world and we say there are people in the tribes, nations, languages, peoples who are not worshiping. And they're Jesus' people. He created them. He made them. He redeemed them. He ransomed them with His blood. And the call on our life is to go make disciples of all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages, all the families, all the tribes. And we go out with confidence. We don't go out with the confidence that we can twist arms and convince people and give just the right gospel presentation to convince them to become Christians and give up their idols. We go out in the confidence that they already belong to Jesus. He shed His blood to ransom people from every tribe, language, nation, on the earth. We give and we go so that they might hear, so that they might believe, so that they might be saved, so that they might worship, just like we've read in Revelation 5.